I believe that, um, that some of maybe the, the fifth or sixth graders uh, here would be better at this than me, but, but please bear with me for a moment, okay? En principio erat verbum, et verbum erat apud deum, et deus erat verbum. Hoc erat en principio apud deum. Omnia per ipsum facta sunt et sine ipsu factum est nihil quad factum est. In ipsu vita erat et vita erat lux umenem. Et lux en tenebris lucet et tenebrae eum non comprehenderunt. John 1, 1 through 5. This is the only way um, people in pre-Reformation Europe would have heard the Bible for centuries, for more than a thousand years, in fact. And most of them would have understood the words about as well as you just understood them. Many of the priests saying the words would have likely been illiterate, not to mention the people, and so they would have spoken those words about as well as I just spoke them. In the early church, a man named Jerome had translated the Bible into Latin, which is what that was, by the way, into Latin, kind of, translated the Bible into Latin from the Greek and Hebrew, and his version, which was commonly known as the Vulgate, or uh, the Latin Vulgate, was virtually the only known Bible in the Western world, really in Europe, for a thousand years. In the early 13, or in the mid-1300s, John Wycliffe had tried to change that illegally. He tried to change it by translating the Bible from Latin into English, but there were no printing presses. And the few copies that were handmade were mostly seized by the Roman Catholic Church and quickly destroyed. And in 1408, a law was passed, written, that made translating the Bible into another language other than Latin, it made that law, uh, it made that, that offense a capital offense, uh, punishable by the death penalty for translating the Bible from Latin into any other language. And so throughout the 1400s, there began to be a, an awakening across Europe uh, as more and more men discovered the truths of the gospel, really in their own personal study of God's word, men like Jan Hus and Savannah But it wasn't until Martin Luther nailed his points of discussion, his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg there in Germany that the, the embers uh, were fanned into flame and the great reformation of the church began. Well, back in England... A man named William Tyndale had himself uh, discovered the truths of the gospel. And just a couple of years after Luther, in 1520, he became a a tutor to the family of of Sir John Walsh. And the Walsh family was very influential in England. And having become attached to the doctrines of this brand new Reformation and, and devoting himself to the study of the Scriptures... He openly proclaimed his beliefs of salvation, of what the Bible said in this house of Walsh, which was very influential there in England. It led to disputes with Roman Catholic leaders there. And his preaching especially brought him much opposition, and eventually he was expelled to the city of London. 
And there he began to preach again. He made many friends among the laity, the common church members, but no friends among church leaders. In fact, one member of the clergy, entrenched in his Roman Catholic beliefs, he once, he once taunted Tyndale with this statement. He said, we are better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. Tyndale was infuriated by this heresy. And he responded by saying this. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scriptures than you. Well, today, many remember Tyndale as the, the father of the English Bible. And in reality, probably he was more influential than even William Shakespeare in changing and developing the English language. Um, See, it's estimated that 90% of the King James Bible that many of us in here grew up with, 75% of the Revised Standard Version, which until recently was one of the most popular versions besides the King James, that both, so 90% of the King James, 75% of the RSV were from the translation of the Bible into English that was made by William Tyndale from the Tyndale Bible. At the age of 42, William Tyndale was executed on October 6th, in the year 1536. He was strangled, burned, and his body was blown to bits with gunpowder. But at some point before his death, he cried what is known as his, as his famous last words, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Three years later, 1539, King Henry VIII issued a requirement that every parish church in England obtain a copy of the Bible in English and make it available for the people. Now, Henry VIII didn't do this with pure motives. If you know anything about Henry VIII, he simply wanted to defy the Roman Catholic Church. But what man meant for evil, God meant for good. There comes a time when we must no longer keep silent, when we must make a stand. There comes a time when we must tell and teach the truths of Jesus Christ and His Word regardless of how it's to be received. Around that same time period, another great moment in history was when Martin Luther refused to recant his teaching when he was confronted at the, the Diet of Worms in 1521. And so st standing in essentially what was a courtroom with the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire looking on, really the threat of death hanging over him, his accuser, his name was Eck, pointed at a pile of books that Luther had written, and he demanded that he recant his teachings because those teachings conflicted with the doctrine of the church and even dared to criticize the Pope. And, and you, you probably remember Luther's famous reply. He said, Unless I am refuted and convicted by testimonies of Scripture or by clear reason, since I believe neither popes nor the councils by themselves, for it's clear that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the holy scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. Luther did not teach or take his famous stand there at Worms, based on his own credentials, based on special knowledge that he had, but on the, on the truth of the plain, clear teachings of Scripture. 
This became known as sola scriptura, that scripture alone has ultimate authority over the faith and and lives of God's people. This should be the conviction that guides all of our teaching in the church. And, And this is the conviction that guided even Jesus, who says in today's passage in John chapter 7, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. John chapter 7, I want to read verses 14 to 24. Turn there if you're not there yet. As we work our way through John's gospel, John seven fourteen says this. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this, that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's just stop and pray before we go on. Lord, I must decrease and you must increase. And so I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Help us to hear and understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the, at the height of the annual Feast of Booths, so if you remember from last week, I mentioned that the, the Jewish people had three major feasts, major annual feasts, that they were bound by God's law to keep. Just quickly, Deuteronomy 16.16 says this. This is from God's law. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And the Feast of Booths marks the, the completion of the harvest season. It also kind of acts, very much acts as a reminder of the the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness living in tents, tabernacles or booths. This feast was a festive time. Um, People set up tents and they camped out all around the city of of, uh, Jerusalem. It was a joyful time. The harvest was in the barn and the people could relax and rejoice. And so at the height of the annual feast of booths, Jesus essentially comes out of his seclusion, or his, as it says here, going about the festival privately, and he begins to teach openly right there in the temple. Now, he still is not revealing himself in glory as his brothers probably mockingly asked him to do at the beginning of this chapter, but he certainly does gain some attention. And as Jesus steps forward to teach here in verse 14... Picture the scene. It's the annual harvest festival. Uh, It's the Feast of Booths, and there's tents set up 
all over the city as people travel in and people who live there set up tents on their, on their porches and in the, in the streets in front of their homes. And people remember their time in the wilderness where the Spirit of God actually dwelt with them in the, in the tabernacle. But remember also, as we picture this scene, the mass rejection of Jesus as the Christ by so many of his followers just in the previous chapter, in chapter 6, and even by his own family at the beginning of this section, this chapter. And so combine that rejection, mass rejection, with the setting that John has said back in his introduction in John chapter 1. Verses 10 to 14, John said this, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, among us. And we have seen his glory, glorious over the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the symbolism of the Feast of Booths. He's the, the true Redeemer who leads God's people to salvation. He's the true tabernacle where God dwells with His people. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, even prophesies really this scene about uh, this that we read today. Malachi 3.1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is John the Baptist. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And here he is in the temple, teaching, fulfilling prophecies. See, there's so much more going on here in this passage than just merely a a good man leaving the obscurity of, of life in Galilee and going to make a name for himself in the big city. This is another step of the Messiah's plan to reveal himself to his people, to make himself known. And what we see happening throughout these chapters, really, 5, 6, and 7 especially, is exactly what John said. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. Look again at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Began teaching. This kind of public teaching or, or preaching of Jesus is, is rare in the book of John. Now, he did it throughout his ministry. Jesus preached often, taught often. We understand that, especially from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but John really doesn't tell us about it very much. He doesn't even hear, he doesn't even tell us what he was teaching, just that he was. Instead, what John usually does as he's writing these accounts is he focuses on, on some conversations that Jesus has with various people. So think, for example, the woman at the well in chapter 4 or Nicodemus back in chapter 3. And in fact, the rest of chapter 7, uh, as we walk through this, we're in, a, we're in a conversation he has with this crowd, a dialogue back and forth with some of which is the crowd, as we saw in chapter 6, and, and some of which are the Jewish leadership, the Jews. And in these opening remarks here, as he begins teaching in verse 14, 
we can see what is necessary if we are to realize our need for Christ and for His teaching. In fact, these verses lay out for us five important truths regarding Jesus and His teaching. The first is almost, a, it's almost an ironic truth, or at least we learn of it ironically, but it's this. It is, this man has learning. This man has learning. Look at verse uh, 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? This man has learning. As I said, we are not, we're not told what he, was, what he taught here, but we can clearly see the reaction of the Jewish leadership. See, they understand that, that Jesus knows what he's talking about. These scribes and Pharisees, as they are there listening, it is unthinkable to them that someone like Jesus, a carpenter's son from Nazareth of all places, a little podunk town oh, way off in Galilee by the sea, that this guy would have the ability to expound, to accurately preach the Word of God, which of course at this point is the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. This is unthinkable to the Jews, to the scribes and Pharisees. It says that they, they marveled at this. They sat in awe of his teaching. It's actually a fairly common reaction to Jesus. Turn over, if you would, back to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read just verses 21 and 22, um, but keep your finger there because we're going to, I'm going to keep going in a minute. Um, the rest of the passage, Mark 1, just verses 21 and 22 says this. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were astonished. Now, we already know that the people were amazed at his authority over, for example, the wind and waves. They were amazed at his authority over the wind and waves when he would calm them. They were amazed at his authority over bread and fish, that he could feed thousands of people with just a small amount. They were amazed at his authority over sickness and death. That's why so many people have been following him. They wanted to see the, the signs and wonders that he was performing. They wanted to be fed and healed. But they're also amazed at his teaching. L listen to the rest of this in Mark 1, beginning picking it up in verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean, unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. See, here's the thing. This is a, a glimpse, an accurate glimpse, but just a glimpse of how we should respond to Jesus. With absolute awe. We should be dumbstruck at who Jesus is and what he has done. We should marvel at his grace and his mercy. 
at his love and his compassion. We should stand amazed in the presence of of Jesus, this this Nazarene. One of my favorite hymns is is that hymn that until recently was actually fairly obscure. Um, It's by Isaac Watts, How Sweet and Awful, and it's A-W-E-F-U-L. We've sung it here a bunch of times, awful, filled with awe. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors while everlasting love displays the choices of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, this is gathered worship that the song is about. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter enter while there's room, well, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. That question, Lord, why was I a guest? This is how we should respond, with awe and marveling, how sweet and awful, filled with awe we should be. But these people, whether it's in the synagogue in Mark chapter 1 or in the temple in John chapter 7. They don't believe that he's the Son of God. So their initial response of marveling, it's, it's not worship. They're just stunned. And they, they shake off these feelings. They shake off the, the marveling. And by verse 20, they actually begin to hurl accusations at him. But another thing to remember, if you saw Jesus walking down the street in Jerusalem in, in 31 or 31, 30 A.D. or something like that. If you saw him walking down the street, you would not be drawn to him. Isaiah 53 verse 2 prophesied that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was just a normal Jewish man. See, this was before Jesus was glorified. It was before he had been resurrected. So imagine... Imagine the awe and wonder when we will see him as Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 describes him. Listen to this. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So imagine the awe when you see him. They marvel at him. How is it that this man has learning? Well, it is common for the Jewish people to be taught the Scriptures, but Jesus taught with a unique authority. So while the other rabbis would would reference uh, other writings, they would reference other rabbis, Jesus would say things to them like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, 
Or he would say something like, truly, truly, King James, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say to you. And he would exposit the scriptures in a way that they had never heard. And since he had no formal training in their rabbinical schools, their, their rabbi schools, he was to them an uneducated nobody. He should not have this knowledge. How is it that this man has learning? And so they see him as a threat. And this phrase, this man has learning, that's a threatening phrase. They are threatened by him. And Jesus answers what is really this accusation by revealing the source of his teaching. Look at verses 16 and 17. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. These verses contain what I think is this second important truth regarding Jesus and his teaching. And I want to summarize it with the statement that Jesus makes here when he says, He will know. He will know. So, So Jesus answers the question that they're not asking. They really don't ask him this question. And he does so by explaining that the the origin of his message is God the Father himself. He says, the one who sent me. He's already explained to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. He said to him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So we could read 17 to say, God sent His Son into the world that the world might be saved through Him. In our day, we like to, and we even insist, on taking credit for our own work, right? Especially preachers. Um, it's appropriate, but every preacher's motto ought to be verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. This should be every preacher, every Bible teacher's motto. The authority of the preacher is found only in God's word. Do you hear that? The authority of the preacher is found only in God's word. I don't have authority in and of myself. I can only tell you what God's Word says. So unless there's a a genuine biblical principle in the mix, okay? Unless there's a genuine biblical principle in the mix, I don't have authority to tell you what kind of car you should drive, what kind of clothes you should wear, what you should do for work or play, whether you should be into essential oils or not, or anything else for that matter. The authority that any preacher has is only in the, in the truth of God's Word. But in verse 17, Jesus cuts it a little bit deeper. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. See, the issue, the issue is not so much the, the verifiability of the messenger, Okay? It's not so much the verifiability of the messenger, but really the issue is, are the things that he is saying true? Are the things that Jesus is saying true? If the things that Jesus has been saying are true, then it verifies the messenger. It verifies that Jesus is the Christ. It has to. See, in verse 15, the Jews are are challenging Jesus' credentials to teach. Who is this man? 
He has learning, but he has never studied. How does he have learning? Jesus, in verse 17, questions their ability to hear. He questions their ability to understand. And he does this in an interesting way. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will. Jesus is saying that the the criteria for understanding the the origin and the truthfulness of his message, of Jesus' message, is that the listener's desire will be for obedience to God's will. Leon Morris, in his commentary, puts it this way. I think this is a little bit easier to understand. He says, anyone who really wills to do the will of God, in other words, those whose will is bent toward obedience to God, they will have the spiritual discernment required to know whether or not the message is even from God. Now, this involves faith. It involves being like the Bereans of Acts chapter 17 who received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. It involves being obedient to his commands. It involves being led by the Holy Spirit who never, ever, ever goes against God's word. Doing the will of God is the outworking of repentance and belief. It's the outworking of faith. It's the ability to say, for example, when listening to a teacher who's claiming to be from God, but something's not right about this guy. Something's not right about what I'm hearing. His message doesn't line up with God's word. Or, in the case of Jesus, this man must be the Christ. He must be the Christ. Let me give you two examples from the same passage. And I think this will be self-explanatory. Turn over to Luke chapter 2. Examples of this kind of discernment. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. So we're in Luke chapter 2, so this is shortly after the birth of Christ. And in verse 25, as um, Joseph and Mary bring the child, Jesus, to the temple, verse 25 says, Now there was a, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the uh, parents brought in the, the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now, I know, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword also will pierce through your own soul, so that thoughts, and, um, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And the second example is verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. 
and then was a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. They understood that this was the Christ. They understood. Simeon understood when he held him in his hands and he said, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your words. For mine eyes have seen, as he holds this baby, my eyes have seen your salvation. He understood by looking at him that this was the fulfillment of the promises. What Jesus is saying in John chapter 7 is that the one who does God's will, the one who is obedient to God, will know that Christ's claims are true and he will seek to glorify God. This is the third truth, really, that he will seek to glorify God. We'll pick it up in verse 18. So John 7, verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood seeks the glory of Him who sent, the glory of God. The Westminster Catechism, the shorter catechism, the one for children, the very first question is this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is what it means that we were created in the image of God. We were created in the image of God like nothing else in all of creation. It means that, that, that God's glory, God's honor, the acknowledgement and worship of Him because of who He is should be reflected in our lives generally and in our worship specifically. This is to be our chief goal in life, that we should glorify God. It should be reflected as we are in the image of God. In verse 18... Jesus is speaking about, about those proclaiming the gospel, specifically even himself at this point. And this is such an important point for preachers and for the rest of us, anyone who will share in the gospel. J.C. Ryle, he said this, A self-exalting spirit in ministers of religion is entirely opposed to the mind of Christ. A self-exalting spirit in ministers of religion is entirely opposed to the mind of Christ. Richard Phillips, another one, he says this, By seeking God's glory in our preaching and, and ministry, we safeguard our hearts from sin and error. Ministers must not preach out of a desire for praise or approval. A woman once said to Charles Spurgeon after church one Sunday, she said, You're the finest preacher there ever was. And he responded by saying, I know that, madam, because Satan whispered it in my ear as soon as I stepped out of that pulpit. The ministry of the pulpit must be devoted to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. Throwing a lot of Latin at you today. Must be devoted to the glory of God alone. And don't you forget that. And don't you let me forget that. Please. This is devoted to the glory of God alone. And, and let me tell you, it's not just the preaching from the pulpit. Every time we share the gospel and share the reason for the hope that is within us. We do so to glorify God, not to make us look good, not to glorify ourselves, but to glorify God alone. 
Preachers aren't the only ones who must seek the glory of God. He, he says here, he says this, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. True and falsehood. Humility before God is key to being transformed by God. It's key to, to knowing and understanding God's word. And this is that interesting kind of word choice here. He says it's true and falsehood. In fact, he, listen, he says this. This is an interesting way of putting it. He says, the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, of the father who sent the son, is true. He doesn't say speaks true things. He says is true. Jesus said later in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Christ, there is no falsehood. In Christ, there is no unrighteousness. But in the Jews, in the Jewish leadership, in these scribes and Pharisees, in their, in their accusations and in their challenges, there's all unrighteousness. There's all falsehood. They're following, of course, the father of lies. And so if we, if we are to be a righteous people, if we have been clothed by His righteousness, then we will seek the glory of Him who sent Him. We will seek the glory of the Father who sent the Son. That's what we seek to do every week when we gather here, every Sunday. I pray that often that we would glorify God, that the world may know Him, that we would glorify God, that all that we do would get, sing God's praises. And as a result of being cloaked with His righteousness and seeking to glorify Him, He goes on to say we will judge with right judgment. This is the fourth truth of Jesus and His teaching. It, it actually pertains to His followers. We will judge with right judgment. Pick it up in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus turns the tables here. He offers a challenge for those who have been challenging him. It really, in verse 19, when he says, well, why do you seek to kill me? Well, the answer has actually already been given. It's, it's back in chapter 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, it says. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Why do you seek to kill me? The answer is because he was breaking the Sabbath. That was their answer. They wanted to kill him for allegedly breaking God's law, yet they broke God's law, even in their answer in verse 20. Look at it. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They blasphemed the Son of God. You have a demon. And they were lying. Everyone knew that the Jews were out to get him. Verse 13 tells us that in the previous section. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. You have a demon, blasphemy. Who's trying to kill you? Everybody knows who's trying to kill him. 
They're blaspheming and lying in their answer. They're unwilling to accept correction. They dig in their heels. They're unwilling to accept corruption even from him or as he goes on to point out to them, the law. They're filled with falsehood. They're filled with pride. The Jewish people, particularly the scribes and Pharisees, those who he's arguing with here, they took great pride in being the the receivers of God's law, in being God's chosen people. Yet they all too eagerly disregarded and broke that same law. We're not going to take the time to go through it this morning, but Paul talks about this at length in Romans chapter 2, about the Jews' uh, eagerness to break God's law. But Jesus goes on to stress his point here in verse 21. He answers them and said, I did one work and you all marvel at it. They could not judge with right judgment. Um, If you remember, they've already wrongly judged him worthy of death, chapter 5, verse 18. And so he reminds them here of this, this one specific miracle that he had done that they had condemned him for death for back in that chapter, chapter 5, which was healing this man on the Sabbath. He was pointing out their hypocrisy. He's saying, Moses gave you circumcision through the law, although it really was established through the patriarchs. This is, circumcision was the physical sign of God's covenant with his people. But he also says he also gave you the Sabbath, which was a, a way to rest as God had rested. What Jesus is pointing out here is that they don't refrain from doing the work of circumcision on the Sabbath when it happens to fall on the eighth day, which is when they would circumcise their, their boys, and when it would fall on his eighth day. So they would break the Sabbath law in order to keep the circumcision law. So if an eight-day-old baby boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, then surely a grown man may have his whole body healed, right? On the Sabbath? Jesus is pointing out their lack of judgment. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. One commentary says he wasn't adopting an anti-Sabbatarian attitude, opposing the whole institution. He pointed out that his action fulfilled the purpose of the whole institution of the Sabbath. In other words, he gave the man rest. He gave this man rest. Jesus is calling us here to understand that God's spiritual purposes for the things that he has ordained, like, think of it this way, there is a spiritual purpose behind baptism, right? There is a spiritual purpose behind communion. We all know that it's, it's a piece of bread that one of the ladies here made. It's just a piece of bread. It's just a little cup of juice. But there's a spiritual purpose behind it. We understand that that's just a, a hot tub of water. But there's a spiritual purpose behind it. There's a spiritual purpose when we gather together and and sing songs, when we pray together, when we offer up tithes and offerings. There's a spiritual purpose behind marriage. There's a spiritual purpose behind children. There's a spiritual purpose behind work and rest. They're hung up on the Sabbath for the sake of the Sabbath. They're hung up on the law for the sake of the law, but God gave us the law to point out our need for Christ. This brings us really to the the fifth truth. 
which is really the answer to their original question. How is it that this man has learning? Jesus' teaching, it both, both confronted and explained the hostility of his enemies. These Jewish leaders are not seeking to do God's will, so they could not recognize biblical, sound biblical teaching when they heard it. They could not recognize whatever it was that Jesus was teaching about. They didn't recognize it as being, as being truth, as verifying that the one who said it was who he said he was. They did not seek God's glory, only their own. And so their hearts were false, as Jesus says. They're covered in falsehood. They judged by worldly appearances, so they couldn't discern God's truth. But for us, if we understand why this man has learning, go back to that original question. If we understand why this man or how this man has learning, if we understand how he has learning, we will understand who he is. And if we understand who he is, then we will understand his word and we will seek to glorify him in all that we do. If we understand who he is, if we understand why this man has learning, because he is God the Son, sent to redeem a people for his own possession. We will understand that he is saying the truth, and we will be compelled to step up and say, I believe this. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. We will be compelled and bound by the truth of God's word because we understand who this man is. He is Jesus, the Christ, whom God sent, not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can understand it that in your sovereignty you have ordained that the Bible be translated into English for us to understand here in this country, that it be translated into French, that it be translated into Spanish and Chinese and so many languages around the world, that people would understand who you are and what you have done, that they would understand who this man is that has this learning, and that they would believe him and glorify Him. Glorify you through believing in Him. Lord, as we wrestle with these texts, as we wrestle with Jesus' words, as we try and understand them, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, that we might judge with right judgment that we would be led by your Spirit, and that we would glorify you and enjoy you forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.